Um, I'm going to start off with something entirely, am I too loud? That's bad. Um, something entirely different, because I just came across this uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I li rather liked it. So I'm just going to share it with you. It might not be theologically exactly accurate, but I liked it. And it's a little statement, and it says this, that God is not interested in who you were. And God is not interested in who you are. And he's not interested in who you will be. He is interested in who you would be. So think about that. I rather like that. God's interested in who you would be, what you would be doing. Right, that's an entirely aside. Now, what is the Bible? If you were going to pick a contentious subject, uh, you, you would probably look, have to look hard to find one. Poor old Jill, she's still confused over that one. Works. Okay, well, yeah, well, John will explain it to you later. <laughs> this is probably the most contentious subject um, in, in Christianity, to be honest. And there is no single, simple answer to this, what is the Bible? Um, when I came here, I jumped in my car, turned the engine off, and off I came. And I started to think, do I actually have to know what this car is made of? And the answer is probably not. Do I have to know how it screws together? Answer, probably not. Do I know how to drive it? Absolutely certainly. So this morning we're talking, though, about the first two things, what it's made of and how it's screwed together. So there is some contention here. What matters is that you know how to drive it, and that's what you're going to be looking at over the next couple of months with John on Monday night. So what is the Bible? Okay, you have an easy answer. It's 66 books divided into two sections that were written before Jesus and those that were written after is known as the Old and New Testament. Okay? How many of you believe that? Yeah, well, you're all wrong. Um, that's completely untrue, actual fact. Uh, that is um, what's on the back shelf. That is an edited construct that somebody wants you to have. And they have created this and given it to you and said, here is a Bible. And you say, oh, thank you. And you read it. It is far more complicated than that. And so we're going to just look at some of these things um, this morning. What? Look at. Look at. Um, <laughs> my guest handed me off my Bristol accent. Um, it'll soon be French. Uh, right, okay. So it's a complicated issue that goes back for... How many thousand years? When was the first Bible story? It probably dates back to 4,000 BC, 6,000 years ago. What I am going to ask you to do is not heckle me to the end. <laughs> and the second thing I'm going to point out, I'm just going to make one point. If God, well, God is sitting in heaven, if he's laughing over anything, it's going to be our treatment of the Bible. Because when you look at the history of the Bible, how we have it, it is absolutely miraculous. And it's an ongoing miracle. It's occurring all the time. And when you look at the problems and the difficulties of bringing this text to where it is today, it is truly amazing. So I'm going to start off by giving you some of the problems so that you can understand um, how, how, how wonderful this, this book is, although it's more than many books. Okay, so the, the New Testament is written in an ancient language, Koine Greek. Nobody speaks it today. It is pretty similar to Greek, 
Um, I have a Greek friend who sometimes, if I really am stuck, I ring him up, and he says, oh, in modern Greek, it would be this. Um, but it, it's written in Koine Greek. The Old Testament is written in both Hebrew and Aramaic. The oldest version of the Old Testament uh, was written in Greek. Jesus used a Greek-based Old Testament called the Septuagint, which was translated from the Hebrew into the Greek two or three hundred years before Jesus. And that is still the most reliable, oldest version of the Old Testament that we have, is in Greek. It's the Septuagint. The first recognized Bible that you could pick up and say, oh, look, this is a Bible, um, was actually translated from those old languages into Latin. And the old Latin Vulgate is still perhaps one of the most reliable old texts that we have, although we hardly use it today. But it's still, it's still a reliable text. Right. What happened was this. After, think of it, go back to the early church, just after Jesus' resurrection. Most of the Christians are Jews at that time. And they're in Jewish synagogues, and each synagogue is self-governing. And each synagogue has its own list of scrolls, being their old, their scriptures. And unfortunately, there is nobody running around comparing these scrolls between one and another. It was technically not easy to do. And they're all over the world. You, you don't have to have much of an imagination to see that the proliferation of those scrolls got a bit out of hand. There were scrolls all over the world. Now, they were very good at copying them, and they were very good with their oral tradition, but nevertheless, they did go all over the world. And one synagogue might say, well, I like this bit of poetry, and they brought it into their canon. Another synagogue says, oh, we don't like that, and threw it out the canon. So not only were the scrolls different, the context of what took us the Holy Scriptures was different. That's all over the, the known world. That's the Jewish scriptures. Then along come the Christians. And funnily enough, they were not an organized bunch at the start. And so people start talking about Jesus. And people start writing down the stories of Jesus. And how many written accounts do you think there were of, this, of Jesus? Well, we don't know. There were possibly hundreds of different people writing down their accounts of Jesus. And then, of course, people were traveling all over the world and taking their verbal accounts of Jesus. And by the time you get a 100 years past Jesus, you've got all these groups of people who are using different scrolls from Jewish synagogues and different accounts of Jesus and different oral traditions. And the whole thing is nobody knows what is going on. And that there was a, one of the early church fathers actually said, when the persecution started, these people are dying for a faith, but they don't know what they're dying for. Because there's no definition of what the scriptures are. They were everywhere. In this time, certain scriptures started to have more impact than others. And they started to leach into all the churches. For example, the Gospels. Most of the churches would have had one, if not two or three, of the Gospels that we know as Gospels. But they would have had a lot of other stuff as well. 
So, round about 300 and odd years after Jesus, 300 years, that's a long time. Think of what's happened in the confusion in 300 years. Over 300 years, the, politi- the politics change. Uh, that's history. We won't talk about Constantine becomes a Christian and Christianizes the Roman Empire. So then all the Christians are told, largely by Constantine, sort yourselves out. A bit like Brexit, but they actually did it. Um, sort yourselves out. So they all start meeting together in various um, uh, meeting places, Nicaea is the one everybody knows about, and it took about 30 years. Over 20 or 30 years, it wasn't one meeting, it was continual meetings um, over a period of time. The Christians all come together and start sitting down with all these, these writings and saying, right, let's make some sense out of this. And they, they made up a list, which is the word canon, just means a list. And this is the list that we say you should read in church. So these are the authorized lists. And they basically weeded a lot out and put a lot in. And you pretty what, not exactly, you pretty what get to the list we have today in the New Testament. So that list was chosen from all these other scriptures round about 353, 26, that sort of time, um, AD. It wasn't to the end of the 4th century that it was completely agreed. The New Testament list. But there were some people who wanted some bits in and some people wanted some bits out and it wasn't as easy as that. But the New Testament list was agreed. They then come to the Old Testament list. Whoa, this was more difficult, okay? And they ended up agreeing to have two lists. They had the list that everybody agreed, which is pretty well our Old Testament. And then they had another list that some people agreed and some people didn't. And then some people said, these are really valuable books. We don't want to lose them, but we can't give them the same authority as the other. And there was a difference of view on these others. And that became known as the um, Deuterocanon or the, the second list or the, what we call the Apocrypha. But even the Apocrypha, no one agrees exactly what's in the Apocrypha. So your book at the back is a selection of these books where someone has either taken the Apocrypha out or put in the Apocrypha in, and no one knows exactly which Apocrypha. And when you come to the, even the Gospels, um, there's disagreement over which Gospels, not, not which Gospels, the four Gospels were agreed, but which version of those Gospels. Because some of them, particularly Matthew and Mark, have different endings. Um, some start early and some finish later. And it's your editor who decides what's in, in, in your Bible at the back which ending you're going to have, which ending you're not going to have. It didn't fall from heaven in a box with God said this on it. It, it had to come from there. Anyway, so the Christians end up with this, can, this list of books that they will read in church. The Jews um, carry on spreading all over the world. And uh, 700 years later, they, are, they have a lot of scriptures all over the place. They then decide... Um, they're going to tidy up their scriptures. And a group called the uh, Masoretes, um create what is known as, as, as the Masoretic text, where they collect all, as far as they can, their scriptures together and settle it down and say, this will be uh, the Torah, 23-odd books of the Torah, the others they had to take from the Septuagint. In the meantime, Christians have lost all their books. So by the time you get to 1000 AD, all the, most, not all, most, the original books have been lost, 
and we, the Christians have to go back and find another Old Testament. So they go back and take the, the, what the Jews have done. So if you pick up your Old Testament and you start reading the Old Testament and you think we'll go back to the Hebrew, don't start thinking that was the Hebrew of Daniel. That was put together maybe as late as 1000 AD. So the old, your Old Testament is much more modern than your New Testament in the actual writing. And some academics point to the fact that the Jews got a little bit stuck on some. It actually went back to some of the early Christian texts to copy their versions of the Old Testament back into the Masoretic text. So the whole thing gets pretty, pretty confused up. Okay, by the time you get to 1000 AD, um, you've got a, you, both the Jews and the Christians have got settled text. But this is how it came about. It was not, did not fall from heaven in a box with the word of God written on it. It developed over the time. And then you get to the Reformation, and then some of the reformers want to take out some of the books of the New Testament. And they want to take out James, they want to take out Revelation, they want to put in the, 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 um, the Shepherd of Hermes and this, that and the other. And there's still argument going on as to what is the, the, the scripture. So when I said to you the Bible is not just 66 books, it's much more than that. It really is much more than that. Um, and it, it's uh, incredibly complicated. You can spend a lifetime um, understanding um, all this. So why trust it? I mean, really, why trust it? If you want to know what the Bible is, you need to imagine four or five mega warehouses all full of tiny bits of paper, scraps of paper, a bit here. And that's what we've got, all impiled up. And a load of academics coming along, getting all these scrappy bits of paper, putting them together, and saying, oh, look, I've made a jigsaw puzzle. It's the Gospel of John. Oh, but I could put this bit in that bit. I'll just put this bit in there. That's what it actually is. But the remarkable thing is that although there are thousands, I mean literally millions of of versions and texts, 99% of it holds together accurately. And any variation you take, there is no change in the theology. There's no change in the basic stories. When people start telling you you can't trust the Bible because there are so many different versions... There are so many different versions. And when you look at it, it's like some guy on, on the west of, of, of the Roman Empire called David, David. Um, other guy on the east of the empire called him Dawid or something. There's, there's subtle changes in names, punctuation, where they had punctuation, often they didn't have punctuation. Um, descriptions of uh, towns and names may be slightly different. Um, sometimes a plural or a tense or a number will be changed. There's a lot of variation like that, a huge amount. But the actual core teaching is absolutely rock solid and consistent. And over this period of time, for that to occur, I think is absolutely amazing. The second thing is that the Jews particularly were very, very particular about their oral tradition. And to say it's an oral tradition, therefore it's like a legend for us, is completely inaccurate. They were very careful over their oral tradition. And when you take things like the oral tradition of the Jews around about, say, um, 6700 AD, um, and then compare it to the um, Septuagint, you find that it's pretty accurate, uh, very accurate. 
And the, the written, well, there's so many written copies because, remember, they, they didn't have printing presses. This is all handwritten. All these things are handwritten. Um, it was all done by monks and people like that who were very careful about the way that they copied these scriptures. And sometimes there are corrections, and sometimes there are errors, and some monk made an error, and they've gone back. These errors are minor. They're very small. They do not change the, the overall teaching of the scripture. So I would take the view that this huge variety, rather than saying, look, it can't be trusted, has the opposite effect, that the main teaching core is tested and tested and tested and tested and been hammered and tested by aggressive academics for nearly 2,000 years, and it's still there. It hasn't changed. And then you get God having some really great jokes. Uh, I think some of this stuff I'm going to tell you now is, is it, most of you know this, but it, it's, I, it's almost funny to me. It, it's God sort of saying, right, you guys, okay. Every now and again, historically, something happens. Like somebody goes off to um, the discovery of the Didache, um, a, a Muslim Turkish library that no one's looked at for a million years, and digs up an old copy of something. And you say, that's just been here for 500 years. No one has interfered with it. It has not changed. And you look at it, oh, it's exactly the same as the version we've got. And this keeps happening, that God keeps throwing little ones out for us and saying, just to test, just in case your faith was wondering a bit, I'm going to let you discover this bit of paper, old parchment that does X, Y, Z. At the end of the, well, right up to the middle of the 20th century, the predominant academic view was that the story of Jesus was a legend, that it was created in Rome to answer some of the um, apocryphal stories that were coming out of Israel at that time, and that the Gospels were written largely there. And this was, this was the, the academic view. If you were a respectable academic, that's the view you'd have taken. Then in 1945, some shepherd was out in his fields in a little village near Nakamani in Egypt. And this is one of those stories. It's actually true. It's so untrue, but it's true. He threw a rock or something for his dog or something. And he threw it in a cave. And he threw it in the cave and he heard crunch, crack. And all that? And he went in there and he found all these pots. And there was, in fact, um, 52 um, ancient, scripture, ancient documents in these pots in Nagamani. Well, he'd been a good Egyptian shepherd. Of course, he whipped it down to the local um, market and started selling them. Um, and so it came out, and then some academic... And the story, it's amazing that some academic happened to be there who happened to see it. And anyway, the result was they discovered 52 um, works. Now, we remember, if we go back in the history here, uh, remember that there came a time when the church sat down and said, these are canalytical, these are not canalytical. So what had happened is some of the non-canalytical works had been stuck in jars, and they'd stick it out in the desert. They didn't want to destroy them, but they just buried them in the desert. And so we have all these stories about this guy, Jesus. There's only two historical references uh, to Jesus outside the Bible, one with Josephus, the other one with Tacticus, and people saying, oh, we can't trust those. There's only two. You know, Jesus didn't really exist. So they dig up these 52 things. This is 1945. These have been there since 310 AD or something. You know, no one's interfered with them. They haven't been fiddled with. Oh, and there's 52 stories all about, huh? There's this guy called Jesus who lived in Palestine. 
who had 12 disciples. And they were called. Oh, and they've got this woman there called Mary Magdalena. She was, oh no, he was crucified by Pilate. Oh yeah. Now these gospels are inaccurate. They're not accepted as canonical. They're Gnostic gospels. One is pretty complete, the Gospel of Thomas, and there's a move today to put Thomas into the, into the modern canon. Just forget it. Um, but the point was, here is independent attestation that Jesus existed and lived way, way back before anybody can say it was fiddled, which is what they'd said before. So the whole academic world had to go and shoot itself in the head and rethink and come back and say, oh, well, Jesus must have existed then. Yes, he did. So you've got these continual sort of drip feeding of God coming back and saying, well, you know, it's, it, here it is. Then, of course, you'll know the next one. In 1946, another problem, another thing happened, and some guy just finds some pots in a cave in Cormann and the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea skulls were discovered. Now, this is a lot, lot bigger find. Uh, no, hardly any New Testament stuff, but all, a lot of Old Testament stuff, and opens up the door to the language of the time. Um, whole copies of Isaiah were found. Hey, here's a copy of Isaiah that was buried 200 years before Jesus. Oh, look, it's exactly the same as the copy we've got today. Despite all the things I've told you about, all the variations, all, but it was the same. And some of the Psalms. We had loads of these Psalms. Oh, they're the same as the ones we've got today. There is one um, translation difficulty in Psalm 22, which is quite interesting. And density scroll, pick it up, there it was. Problem answered. So the density scrolls are dug up, the Nag Hammani is dug up, and, and you end up with attest- just proof coming from old archaeology that the scriptures we have today can be trusted. Despite the history and the difficulties, that God's brought them all together. And I just think this is amazing. Then, of course, you get the advent of carbon dating and all these people saying, oh, these things are, mid- med- you know, they were written in a thousand years AD, they're all the, oh, no, people start carbon dating them. Oh, no, this goes back to when? And the carbon dating starts proving the authenticity of the old, the old parchments you've got. And then they discovered the next one. The next one was great. Uh, textual criticism. I'm not going to go into what textual criticism is this morning. It takes too long. But it's basically a way of reading and comparing scriptures. And it was originally invented to disprove the scriptures. Um, you know, we'll look at it and compare and show that it's all, it's all just all made up. Ho-ho, it's done the complete opposite. <laughs> and now you've got the textual critics. All, all the sort of diehard evangelicals are all textual critics. And, and um, showing more and more uh, that the, the authenticity and the trustworthiness of these old bits of parchment, which are all, all over the world, which is where it came from. So you, you've got God continually reaffirming um, the, the status of the scriptures through all these and other ways. And you, 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 there's one called form criticism, which w- was brought out. Uh, I don't know if any of you might have heard of guy called Professor Erdman, Bert Erdman, Bart Erdman. Um, he, he's the present go-to theologian. If, if, if um, the BBC or someone wants a theologian, they get hold of Bert Erdman, and he, he turns up. He, he wrote a book and became um, a big bestseller in, in uh, America just a couple of years ago, and it was called How Jesus Became God. 
And his, his, he, you can no longer say Jesus didn't exist. It's just impossible to say that. You can no longer say uh, there's no evidence. It's impossible to say that. So he said, yes, Jesus existed. Jesus was a good man. He came along. He taught people. And he taught about God. He never wanted to be God. And he never said he was God. And this is how the Gospel of John has evolved to say that um, Jesus was God. It all comes from this form criticism. Da, 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 da. So along come the textual critics. And in a couple of years, boom. You can't say it. It's just illogical to say that. So we keep, we keep having all these attacks on the, the teaching of the scripture, but it keeps, God keeps bringing it back every single time. I, I find it amusing. I find it almost funny that, that it's, uh, God is sitting there saying, oh, I haven't got my word again. I'll give you 10 years and I'll throw another one out for you. you know, you'll dig something else up because yeah, it's, it's there. So where are we today? Yeah, okay, there are, how you drive it, which books should be in the Bible, um, is, that's a question that you have to answer for yourself. You either believe um, that the books that we accept, or, or, or you could say you believe something else. Um, I would just say to you, look, look at what's been attested over the last 2,000 years. That would be my view. Look at, look at what's worked. Um, and I love the Apocrypha. I, I think it's, it's, it's a wonderful teaching in the Apocrypha, particularly Ecclesiasticus and things like that. There's wonderful writing in there. But it doesn't have the same historical authorities as, as the, the, um, the books that we accept. Um, look at some of the New Testament Apocrypha books. They're really very interesting. They teach you a lot about the times of the days. But whatever you say about Paul's writing, the more you come back to it, the more you test it, the more it stands. Kick it hard. The harder you kick something, you're either going to break it or hurt your foot. Well, the more you kick the authority of the New Testament, you're just going to get a sore foot, to be honest, because God keeps throwing other ones out at you. Don't be frightened of people coming up and criticizing it, because if it's true, it will stand. This is the point. If it's true, it will stand. And it stood for 2,000 years. And it's still standing. Despite all these problems, and I love these problems, I love the difficulties, because I know that there's going to be a solution. And God comes up and says, here, another one. And I'm sort of waiting for the next discovery, so that poor Mr. Erdman will have to eat his words again. Um, I feel very sorry for the guy, but there we are. He's, he, he's trying to make this point. He became very famous, became very rich. Um, and somebody else comes along and says, oh, you, you, you missed this point. Oh, yes. Pumpf. There we are. So, that's where the Bible came from. It is complicated. There's no easy answer to it. That, that you don't, please don't fall into the trap of believing it fell, fell, fell from heaven in a box with this is the word of God written on it, because that is inaccurate, and that's not going to help you. It came a much more indirect route. But what you can say is go and kick it as hard as you want to, because I think it's going to stand the kicking. That, that's my, my, my belief. There are some difficulties today with people reading the Bible and how they read it. That there are people who, who, who say that um, it's a source of ancient material that can be used for guiding our lives and we must adapt it to today's thinking. Yeah, so the, true of Plato. You know, how you take a very liberal view, then you're going to lose the, 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 one, the, the authority of it. The difficulty for me, for some people, is people who say it is the unerring word of God and must be taken totally literally on face value. The trouble with that is it's not historically accurate. 
And secondly, what do you mean by unerring? What do you mean by literal? Jesus said, I am the way. Does that mean I walk on him? You know, I am the door. Was he a door? Jesus used um, allegory. So there is room here to interpret the scriptures. But the scriptures, for me, reflects God's heart and God's values. Yes, it reflects the ancient values of past civilizations. And when you read the scriptures, sometimes you have to tease out the difference between God's values and the values of those civilizations. The fact that David did it doesn't mean to say God wanted him to. This is a point people often miss. Often the Bible records things, but doesn't necessarily recommend them. Those of you who know Psalm 37 will know exactly what I mean. You know, God records certain things, but doesn't necessarily promote them. There is a difference between what ancient civilizations believe were right and what the Jews believe were right at that time and what God's heart is today or what God's heart is. We have to interpret it. I do have a problem with people who take the view that the uh, revelation is Father, Son and Holy Bible. You know, it's not a code. That's what the um, Muslims treat the Quran as. It's a code. It's not a code. The revelation to us is not the Bible. It is... Jesus. He, the Bible reveals Jesus to us, but it's Jesus who is the revelation, not the Bible. The Bible reveals him. So my view could be summed up by saying that the Bible is the light that the Holy Spirit shines on Jesus. It's a book that I think the Holy Spirit uses preferentially. There are, the Holy Spirit can use anything. You know, don't say the, Bible, the Holy Spirit will only use the Bible because the Holy Spirit can use anything the Holy Spirit wants to. But it's certainly there's a preference that God has in the scriptures. He uses the scriptures. It reflects God's, they reflect God's values when seen through the light of the Holy Spirit. The best way of interpreting the scripture is with the scripture. See what the scripture says about the scripture. And the more you go down that line, it's like the brighter it gets, the clearer it gets, the, the, the more status and value you will end up giving to the scriptures. But do it with your eyes open, because it's a wonderful journey to, to have the courage to say, yeah, there are many different versions. There are, this is a text that somebody else has edited. Um, that's what you've got in, in your Bibles today. They're edited texts. But the more you look at it, the more the Holy Spirit speaks through it, and the more it stands and after 2,000 years, it's still there. And it's still going to be here until Jesus comes back. Why? Because God's given it to us. And I see it's an ongoing miracle. I don't want to describe it as the word of God because that's Jesus. I don't want to say it's unerring because what does that mean? I just want to say it's the ongoing miracle that God is giving us to show his values and uh, his, his, his teaching. Just by way of closing, the, the big search for academics who are looking at the scriptures is how close can we get back to the original scripture? And if you read um, a lot of people's statements of faith, particularly those who say, uh, we believe in the unerring word of God, you often find a clause, comma, in the original version. Of course, we haven't got the original version. So the whole thing means nothing. But how close can we get back to the original version? 
with even the liberals or even those who are opposed to sort of giving the scripture status today will recognize that today's modern English translations are probably closer to the original scripture's writings than we've ever, ever been. They're closer today than you would have had, say, 100 years after Jesus. Because after 100 years after Jesus, you'd have had loads of different translations and loads of different stories, and you'd have to choose between them. And this is due to all this... Um, it is aggressive, because there are many people who become Bible theologians because they want to disprove it. You know, they're there to try and knock it down, and the more you attack it, it strengthens it. Um, if you look at all that academic attacking over the last, particularly the last hundred years, what it's done is it's pushed us closer and closer and closer to people who are now arguing about really tiny text, tiny uh, changes in the text and tiny changes in, in, the, in the faces of the verbs or something. The, the, the scriptures that you have in your hands now are probably as, as accurate as the original scriptures were in Greek and, and when they were first written which means to me they can, be, they can be more trusted. And we have a generation today who grow up with five or six, oh, well, how, many, how many translations of the Bible? They're all, but if you read them, they're all different, but they're all the same. They all have the same message, but somebody may turn a verb round or something like that. It's important to remember that it is written in languages that are no longer used. And we, we were talking just outside um, about the difference in some of the, t- the tenses the, the Greek, the commonest tense in the Greek, you know what a tense is, past, present, future, things like that, okay? The Greeks use a tense called the aorist tense, which is neither past nor present nor future. We don't have one in English. So a lot of the statements that Jesus makes are written in this aorist tense, and we don't have it. So you have to get your head around it a bit to understand exactly what Jesus is saying. But why has God done that? He's done it to, to, so that there is space to move. He's done it so that you cannot say, I'm right and you're wrong. He's done it so that we have to respect each other's views. And he's done it in a way that does not damage or attack the authority of the original scripture. To me, the, the, the Bible is today's ongoing miracle. It's a continual revelation that God has given us not just by what it says, but by what it is. And the way it's continued to me is, is uh, it's a, a study that will take you the whole of your life to understand, but it's, it's well worth looking at some of these areas because you come away thinking, yeah, it, the picture I have is of a rock. Go and kick it. You know, I'm not frightened of you kicking a granite rock. You might hurt your foot. I'm not worried for the rock. If I didn't trust it, I'd be worried for the rock. Please don't go and kick my car. You know, it will bend. It will be damaged. Because I'm not sure it's going to take the kicking. Right? Go and kick the rocks in the garden. Because they ain't going to give way. And that's what the scriptures are like to me. Go and kick it as hard as you like. It's not going to go anywhere. It's, it's God's gift to us. And we can trust them. We can learn from them with the light of the Holy Spirit showing us where we're going. So you don't have to know how it's put together. You don't have to know how it's screwed together. Learn to drive it. That's the important thing. Amen.